0: In the days of King Herod of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a defendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren. And both were getting on in years. Once, when he was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and to offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will name him John. You will have great joy, And gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink, even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him. To turn the hearts of parents to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Hmm. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know that this is so? For I am an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered at his delay in the sanctuary. When he, did not, when he did come out, he could not speak to them. And they realised that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she remained in seclusion. She said, this is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favourably on me and took away the disgrace that I have endured among my people. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Grab somebody you with. Push through the awkwardness. (laughs) Father, thank you that you've not called us to an individualistic faith. You've set us in family. And I thank you that it's an open family. And we pray that your word would burn in our hearts like fire. That it would burn so much so that people would say, what is it that's lighting you up? And that we would extend your heart and your welcome to all those around us in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you were uh, not here a week ago, um, you missed part one of a 150-part series. <laughs> <laughs> it was like the pilot. Um, so, but unfortunately, we've we've gone less tech this week. So we haven't even got any slides this week. Um, you know, pilots tend to be like they beef it up when the actual season gets um, gets released by Netflix or whatever. Um, but beginning a week ago. Uh, we're on a a series through Luke's Gospel, which will take us about 18 months, and then we're going to go straight into the book of Acts, which will take us another 18 months. The reasons why and all the introduction, you can listen back to a week ago um, and catch up with that, so I'm not going to rehearse that, other than to say that the Gospel begins in obscurity and at the end of Luke's Gospel finishes at the heart of Judaism, just outside Jerusalem, at the site of the temple, which has been reformed and remade in the life of Jesus. And then the gospel then goes through the body of Jesus, the church that he births at the beginning of Acts, and finishes at the heart of the known universe in Rome. Tiny mustard seed of the kingdom grows to become the biggest tree in the garden. And this morning, we're going to sort of rewind all the way back to obscurity, to a tiny story involving several characters, one main character and one chief character, which we're going to look at this morning. And what's interesting from the prophetic word that Nigel shared is that that's right at the heart of our Bible reading this morning, and he didn't even cheat by asking what was next on the scheme um, in the lead up to that. It's about being ready, about being prepared for the Lord. So to visualise this, what happens is we've got an elderly priest ministering in the temple in Jerusalem when his shift comes and at the temple you'd have the Holy of Holies sealed off. In front of that would be a massive curtain, what we know as the veil. In front of that is the altar of incense where they would burn sacrifices to represent the prayer which is going on by all the people outside. So it would be like the Holy of Holies is in the vestry through there. Zechariah has come into the temple and the altar of incense is here and he's burning some sacrifices and all you lot are out in the rain outside, (laughs) praying. And you're praying and he's burning to embody what is going on. The prayers of the people rising to God when suddenly Gabriel appears. And Gabriel comes for the first time since the book of Daniel. And when he appeared in the book of Daniel, he was announcing at the end, in all crazy language, at the end of 70 weeks, at the end of the time God has prepared to, for everything to be fulfilled, the Messiah's coming. So when Gabriel appears in Luke chapter 1, you've got to prick up your ears like they would have that something's about to be launched And it's about it's the Messiah, because the last time Gabriel was here, that's what he said would happen. Okay? Got that? Zechariah, of course, doesn't compute. He's struck dumb and all of that stuff. But let's just back up a little bit. Uh, I'm going to introduce some of the minor characters, then hit the main character, then the chief character, and show you how it all fits together. The first character is Herod. In the days of King Herod of Judea, verse 5, We've got this, Luke set out this orderly account to know the truth, um, you know, a a historical view of Christianity. They would have heard what's going to happen to the end, but suddenly we're plunged back into the days of King Herod, a ruthless, oppressive, violent tyrant. Matthew's Gospel is the one that brings out for us that as soon as Jesus was born and Herod heard heard about it, what he did was he tried to snuff out something that was coming on which could rival his empire by killing all the firstborn. And it's Matthew's Gospel that that brings us that. This is a a terrifying monarch. He's the one who has John the Baptist beheaded and at the end partners with Pilate to do away with Jesus. Jesus. This is an evil king. So the first thing for us to capture is if anybody feels Christianity is hard in Britain in 2022, we've got an easy ride compared to these guys. And we should take courage that the gospel transplanted into days of great oppression and great violence prospered and could not be snuffed out. Secondly, There was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. What I think is funny is that no parents ever call their children that. (laughs) It's like, we like Caleb, we like Joshua. What you need to take from that is that takes you right back to 1 Chronicles chapter 20. And Abijah was the eighth of the 24 priestly clans set aside within the people of God to minister to God on behalf of the people. So this descends from Aaron. You can read about this in Exodus 30. And what we're trying to pick up straight away, even though Luke's gospel is sometimes associated as being for the Gentiles, Luke is impeccable in his credentials at seeing what was launched through the Jewish people fulfilled in Jesus, but just done completely differently. And what he wants us to capture is that Zechariah is a man of awesome, pure priestly credentials. Secondly, not only that, he's married well. His wife was a descendant of Aaron. So both of these two are from priestly families. More than that, we get some detail about them, verse 6. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. Both were righteous, both lived blamelessly, followed all of the commandments of the Lord. Uh, is everyone okay? All right. So, um, what you need to take from this is do you ever sometimes think in the Old Testament it's like God sets out a standard that nobody lives up to? And they all try, 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 fail, 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 try, 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 fail, fail. Do you ever think that? And then thank goodness for Jesus because he takes all the, whatever. Now, absolutely thank goodness for Jesus. But what you need to take from this is that Luke said, no, these guys utterly followed the law. They were blameless. They followed everything perfectly. And then here's the sucker punch, verse seven. But they had no children. Because Elizabeth was barren. And both now, we're getting one in years. Now in every generation, childlessness when it's desired is a massive pain. An emotional pain that just hits people. You can feel just the vulnerability of these two elderly people serving the Lord <laughs> in utter purity and yet barren and not able to have their family. So I just want to say for all of us here, whether that's us or not, you, we can find such comfort and strength from the characters in God's Word. They hit every human situation. And what's interesting is that Zechariah's name means God remembers, it's not unseen, it's not forgotten. God remembers. God remembers. But it gets worse. Childlessness for them would have been highly socially awkward, but worse than that. How they would have been viewed by the rest of the people of God is cursed by God for their covenantal disobedience. That goes back to Leviticus 26, where it sketches out, according to the law, if you obey the covenant of God, you'll be fruitful and you'll have children. If you don't, you'll miscarry and be barren. So this is the the clash that Luke is bringing to us now. Number one, he uh, he wants us to notice that they are holy and blameless and follow everything perfectly, but they're barren ah, this doesn't make sense. They, in their people's eyes, were under a curse. So I want to just take two things from this very briefly before uh, moving forward. The first is this. In the Old Testament, the principle is, live well, you'll prosper. Be bad, it all goes carnage. In the New Covenant, introduced right here, you know, Six verses into Luke, it's not like that. Bad things happen to good people, good things happen to bad people. Jesus directly teaches this when the tower fell on a bunch of people and they asked him, whose fault was it? So this is what we just have to take from this, that Christianity is different to every other religion, every other philosophy, because it is not according to our works. Does this make sense? The second thing is I want you to capture the purity of the worship of these two elderly legends. They were viewed by their people as a curse for their disobedience to God's law, and yet they were holy and blameless and followed everything. So even though their people thought they were a disgrace, they served the Lord and were unswerving in their allegiance and worship to him. Now, I love to worship when life's awesome and I'm getting so many blessings and it's all zingy. But the worship God loves is when you have the worst year of your life, when everything's falling apart, and then you choose to dance before the Lord. And then you choose to sing before the Lord. You know, when we're sort of bopping up and down half the time, it's not because it's all rosy and and all of that, but because he is rosy. Because he is worthy of all of our praise. He's unchanging. It's me that sort of is flaky and you know gets tossed around. But what God loves is the depth and purity of our worship when it's hard. Because then the eyes of our hearts lift off ourselves. And they say, I am going to worship you through gritted teeth. Because of you, not because of what I'm tasting or getting or receiving. Does this make sense? Now, I'm, you know... In the days of King Herod, bad days, they were serving the Lord. Who knows what lies ahead? I think there is extreme challenge coming to the church in this country and extreme glory. So we're going to have to get used to serving the Lord when things are challenging. The beauty is, Jesus warned us, he prepared us. He says, in this life you will have troubles. But fear not, because I have overcome the world. That doesn't mean I'm going to make every problem disappear. I'm going to allow you to develop resilience in me to face those. And if you get killed for it, don't worry, because you're going to heaven anyway. <laughs> All right? Okay. Then we, cut, we get brought to the central character being introduced. And he's not the chief character, but he's the central character in this story. And what we have is the introduction... And it's really interesting because he's going to fade out in a a chapter or two. Um, But what we have is John, born by impeccably credentialed priestly people, in comparison, who we're going to read very shortly, Jesus, born to a teenager, (laughs) from the line, if you read Matthew's Gospel, full of brigands, bandits, prostitutes, and all of that stuff. And that's the grace of God. To work through human weakness. But anyway, so let's read about uh, Zechariah appears to John at the, temp- at the altar of incense. The people are outside and um, he says, the angel said to him, verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Zechariah has not only been praying as a priest, he's been praying about this. Because your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will name him John. Zechariah, God remembers, your prayers have been heard, and your wife will bear you a son, and his name is John, and do you know what John means? God is gracious. The heart of this story is the amazing grace of God being poured poured into these elderly, vulnerable people for the salvation of the world. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Probably, coming from his priestly line, the Nazarites, they didn't drink. Sometimes I think we should drink a little bit less, so let's just take that, take note, or be filled with the Spirit rather than drinking wine. And even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that happens in a few verses' time, doesn't it? Elizabeth is visited by Mary, now incarnated with Jesus. And what happens? The Baptist leaps within her, leaps for joy just at the nearness of Jesus. And Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit. And then Mary starts fire-tunnelling, and ah, it's carnage. Um, so that's, that's what's going on. It was fulfilled straight away. Something like that. <laughs> Verse 16. He, this is John, and here's the the guts of it. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, when they heard this, well, they're hearing it through Luke, When Zechariah heard this as a Jewish priest, straight away, he would have heard Malachi 3, verse 1, and Malachi 4, where in Malachi 3, verse 1, what happens is the Lord prophesies, Behold, I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So when they began to hear that, they would have heard. Oh my goodness, the messenger's coming. Zechariah would have heard the messenger. Wow, this this John, suddenly you're talking about the messenger and he's going to prepare the way for the Lord who will suddenly come. Then, Malachi 4, verse 5. Lo, I will send the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Verse 6. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. That's what would have been firing off in Zechariah's mind as soon as Gabriel announced these words to him. Number one, there's a messenger coming who's going to make ready the people, prepare the way for the Lord. And secondly, that he's going to do that by changing the hearts of people in their innermost relationships. Now, sorry, I'm going quickly because we've got communion. Is everyone all right? Yeah. Okay, just strap yourself in. Here we go. Two questions, Okay. Number one, why did Jesus need a messenger to prepare the way for him? Why did Jesus need John the Baptist before he came? Okay? I don't know if you ever thought about that. Is that an interesting question? Because yeah. we focus on Jesus all the time, don't we? And rightly so. But what's interesting, just ask us, why did he need a messenger? Why did he need a forerunner? Why did he need someone to get everybody ready? And secondly, I want to ask this question, what role, if any, would a messenger, forerunner, John the Baptist type ministry play post-Jesus, post-cross, post-resurrection, post-Pentecost? Okay? Are they interesting questions? Yeah. They are for me anyway, so you're going to get my take on it. <laughs> so, why did why did Jesus need to be to have the people prepared? Well, let's dig into what this messenger would do. Verse seventeen, uh, sorry, verse sixteen. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God with the spirit and power of Elijah. Again, what would have fired off in their minds is one Kings eighteen one of the most famous confrontations between idolatry, witchcraft, false prophets and the people of God, which happened on Mount Carmel. And what happens is hundreds of false prophets basically called on the Lord, flagellated themselves uh, to try and get fire to come down from heaven. Elijah basically says, let's take November 22 in Britain the rainiest month ever in the history of the universe, and let's, let's cover that wood in water, douse it, saturate it, water, get a fire, can- a, a, a fire brigade water cannon on this wood. Let's get it as wet as we can because my God is going to send fire from heaven. And so when he called on the Lord, fire came down from heaven on this wet, soggy wood, lit it up, and all the people suddenly had their idolatry dismantled and suddenly went, oh my goodness, he is the Lord. He is our God. Okay? So the first thing the the messenger's going to do is he's going to dismantle idolatry. Secondly with the spirit and power of Elijah he will turn the hearts of parents to their children and with Malachi 4 and children to parents is there anything harder as a parent when your children are being stubborn and rebellious and disrespectful <laughs> or as a parent when you then feel cross and resentful and ah. now it's because the world is flavored tinged with sin that is fractured the most important relationships which are in the, f- the heart of the family and in the household. And he, his forerunner, is going to change everything around so that we stop resenting, we stop rebelling, and we start to have soft hearts ready to give honour and for things to return as they should. This goes further. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous... The reason Christianity doesn't make sense is because, as the Bible says, the God of this age has blinded the... doesn't make sense to non-Christians. is because the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So you know as well as I do, there was one time in my life where I was just like, those guys are a bunch of hypocrites, there's nothing there. And something happened whereby I was like, oh my goodness, they've got him who is the answer to everything. And there's that turning, that softness, that openness where the aggression against God coming from our rebellion is dismantled, and suddenly we have a soft heart and a receptive heart and a humble heart. Idolatry teared down, openness to to just have a soft heart to the way relationships are meant to be, and an openness to the ways of the Lord to come under them with humility as being really the best thing for us. Those are three things that the messenger forerunner is going to bring and none of them are in the ministry of Jesus. Okay? So why does Jesus need the Baptist to come before him? Let me answer that question in in just a moment. I'm going to summarise three things that Jesus comes to bring us in the kingdom of God. The first is, eternal salvation saving us from ourselves saving us from our sin and rescuing us into eternal life forever and ever and ever okay Is anyone all right about that Just <laughs> like yeah fine uh, whatever <laughs> yeah you know, this is what changes life so if we, when we breathe our last earthly breath it's not the end we're with him forever like we tasted a bit this morning Of what's going to be the reality unfiltered, unchecked for all time. You're worthy, you're holy. Heaven kicking off and then partnering with Jesus, ruling and reigning in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the gift that Jesus comes to bring. Secondly, he comes to share with us his inheritance. The most common phrase in the writings of the New Testament after the Gospels and Acts is that if we submit to Jesus as Lord, we are now in Christ. So that means it's not just something you get when you die. It means that when you accept Jesus into your life, he accepts you into the heavenly realms. And you are in him, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. So although you're walking around in West Sussex, you're also with Jesus in the heavenly realms of the Father. Not bodily, that will happen one day, but spiritually. Spiritually. Okay. And because of that you share Christ's inheritance. This is what Romans 8:17 means that we become co-heirs with Christ. So everything that the Father gave to Jesus, his wisdom, the glory, the power, the authority, all of that is now shared. Well, it hasn't stopped being shared. It's shared with Jesus and because we're in Jesus, it's shared with us. Does this make sense? Okay, so that's the second thing, Christ's inheritance. The third is the promise of the Father. Now, what's the promise of the Father? The ability to do it. (laughs) It's not even uh, an inheritance that you have to remember that you have. It's the very presence of the third person of the Trinity moving into our lives, filling our bodies with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead so that we can live the life that God called us to. Now, three things. Salvation, Christ's inheritance, the promise of the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason we need the Baptist and his ministry is summarised in Acts 19, verse 4, as the baptism of repentance, tearing down idolatry, setting right relationships, giving us an appetite for godly wisdom. Why do we need that? Because can you imagine landing... The kingdom, salvation, Christ's inheritance and the promise of the Father on a heart which hasn't had idolatry dismantled and hasn't had a softness to be humble in relationships and doesn't have an openness to the wisdom of the Lord. It would land on us and maybe it could land on us in 21st century self actualizing world revolves around me Western Western Christians, and so what happens then is you get all this stuff of Jesus, but it's landing on a heart which hasn't been prepared and made ready in order to look after it as it should. So the gift of salvation is like, oh, thank you, Jesus. You know, this is why the church in the West is just not alive because it's Jesus is coming in and he's like in my pocket as my little pocket helper. No, 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 no. No, the Galileo revolution, where Galileo said, you know, 500 years ago, no, 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 the sun doesn't revolve around the earth. The earth is one tiny planet amongst the solar system revolving around the sun. And idolatry torn down means that we recognise, no, you are the son of God. And my small, small life, which isn't bad Christian self-image, but my humble approach is to say, you are big and I am small and I'm going to fit around you. (laughs) <laughs> my life revolves around you, not you around me. And so if you say go and it costs me something, it's my pleasure to serve my king. If you call me to do something and the fruits of that are not seen for decades, it's my pleasure to serve the king. What can I give you, Lord? This is what I offer. I give you my heart, It says the carol. You know, this is, this is where, how, it, how it works. And that's why idolatry has to be torn down. Can you imagine the inheritance of Jesus being given to a heart which is arrogant and bitter and rebellious? And now you've just got you just stuff full of machine gun, wisdom, glory, power, you know, coming from a, from a broken, fractured heart. This is why the Baptist is needed. Does this make sense? Yes. But what we've done. And I say to my shame, and this morning what I'm doing is I want to put a pillar into the theology of this church, is what we've done is we've, we've made repentance a bad word. And what's happened is we haven't challenged the cultural cocaine that we're snorting, which is, it's all about you, it's all about you, you're worth it, you're worth it, you're worth it. Well, we are, we are worth it and we are precious in God's sight because of his grace, because of his love, because of his magnificence. And without him, we're absolutely lost. And we're also lost when we slip into our own strength and just live by the flesh, not according to the Spirit. Does this make sense? The world does not revolve around me. It revolves around him. And that's the Copernican revolution. That is is the calling on every Christian who would follow Jesus. And that's why Jesus has the forerunner come in who, let's remember, is not only the greatest prophet, but also the last prophet, good enough to be beheaded, who said, I must decrease, that he must increase. That's the way round it is. And then salvation, then the inheritance, then the power, can be stewarded without us killing each other or killing ourselves. Does this make sense? Mm. I just want to say to us that we would be foolish to think that the discipleship of the world we live in has not stepped up its game. And therefore, we need to have a radar for the spirit and power of Elijah brought to us by the Holy Spirit to say, Lord, please illuminate the ways that I'm, I'm just individualistic and selfish and just, you know, all of that. I want to reflect your heart. I want to be generous like you, are, Father. I want to be full of grace like you, are, Father. I want no one to be seen but you, Jesus. And we just unplug, we stop snorting that junk and we come with humility and a broken and contrite spirit, as Isaiah 66 says. Is that all right? Now, let me answer the final question and then... Now, it doesn't mean we beat one another up. It doesn't mean that we're getting all lorry and all that stuff. But the stakes are too high for it to be me plus Jesus. No, he's moving in. I'm dying. (laughs) It's like zero me, 100% you. That's the equation now. Make sense? So what role does this play in... The post Jesus church. Well, can I just bring to us um, the very first sermon? It'd be a, a topic of interest, a bit of homework for you this week to read through the sermons in the book of Acts, um, if you um, would like. <laughs> um, but let's turn, if you like, to the very first sermon, <laughs> um, and Acts 2, and we're going to pick up at verse 32. This is the very first sermon. This is post-Pentecost. they got fire tunnels rolling. Everyone's drunk in the spirit. It's carnage. It's a full-on revival meeting. The whole city comes running. And Peter says, whoa, whoa, whoa. These guys haven't been on the Heineken. This, something else is going on. Verse 32. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. It's not beer, it's not wine. This, he's poured it out. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, are you ready? Brace yourselves. Are you ready? Gird your loins. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds, sounds, like, sounds holy. <laughs> Verse 36. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Our oh, Lord, cut us to the heart again, I pray, every day. And said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you, for your children and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Baptist has to come in. Because otherwise this lands on self-reinforcing me, 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 me. And the Baptist has to go forth the spirit and power of Elijah so that our hearts are ready to contain and carry the kingdom of heaven. Is that all right? Let me finish with one thought as we go into communion. At the start I was saying Christianity is not be good and all goes well. Be bad and all goes badly. You can serve the Lord and have so much trouble in life and serve him faithfully. You can be a terrible person and be the wealthiest, powerful, all of that. you will carry nothing if you even get let in to the kingdom of heaven. But I just want to speak into the final part of this story. Elizabeth's disgrace is taken away. And this is the grace of God. I want to just speak right now into your life and into my life. How we know If shame is resident in our lives is if we could be shown a movie reel of all of our past life and it makes us feel utterly wretched if we haven't brought the cross to bear in that place now at the end of this God steps in and reveals his grace to Elizabeth but I just want to I just want to show us where's Gabriel standing Gabriel is standing at the right side of the altar of incense, which is on the edge of the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is separated by a thick curtain, the veil, and in front of that is this altar of prayer, altar of incense, and Gabriel standing there with his back to it. Now, Elizabeth's disgrace is lifted through an, a sovereign act of God stepping into her life. But what that points to for all of us, as he stands in front of the veil, we're going to meet that veil again in 23 chapters time. He announces that the disgrace is going to be... He announces John is being born, God is gracious, in the very place where the taking away of every bit of shame, every bit of disgrace is going to be removed by the power of the cross. Because when the cross went, everything that our shame should keep as a barrier spiritually to coming into the Holy of Holies was decisively torn down by the curtain, the very veil that Gabriel had his back to being torn from top to bottom and the way made open. So what I want to just speak now into our hearts If there's anything from the past, as you receive bread and wine this morning, would you receive it in your mind's eye from the Holy of Holies, the very heart of God, given to you to wash you from within by the blood of the Lamb that leaves you white as snow and to go to that place from your past and to cancel it in your heart and in your spirit so that you can know, you can really know, really know On the inside, I'm clean. I'm ready. I'm prepared.